There's one more thing you have to do. You know what it is? Season 2. On this episode of Aka Education, Justin speaks with Sean Altman, co-founder of the legendary acapella group Rockapella. Sean talks about his time on Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, how he co-wrote the iconic theme song, and the many projects he has taken part in during his storied career. Let's get ready. Aka Education starts now. It's the Aka Education Podcast. Hey everybody, it's Justin Glodish with episode 51 of the Aka Education Podcast. So glad you've been with me this entire year, and I have a really special guest this week. Uh, one of my personal idols. Um, when I was a kid, I used to watch Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego after school. And I had the pleasure of performing with this person at Carnegie Hall about six years ago. It was a lifelong dream of mine and it came true. And I'm so happy he's with me this week. His name is Sean Altman. He's one of the founders of Rockapella. Sean, thank you so much for joining me this week on the Aka Education Podcast. I'm honored to be here. Hey, um, I just want to mention at that Carnegie Hall performance, yeah. I was only seven weeks out of um, new hip surgery. Oh wow! And that, when I think of when I think about Carnegie Hall, all I can think of is big scar on my butt. You know, I, rem- I think I remember in passing you telling me this at the like after parties. Like, oh, by the way, I had hip surgery not too long ago. <laughs> I was doing everything I could not to limp on that stage. Yep, and uh, oh, we ended up doing the. Um, the the guy's song, the Troublemaker song from the Pitch Perfect movie, and uh, I got to beatbox with it, and you got to sing solo, and we had this great, great student musician who ended up rapping. It was it was a really cool experience, and I was glad to share the stage with you that day. Oh, I, I was really happy to to be there, and uh, Deke Sharon was very nice to have me. It was. Um, so let's talk about Rockapella. I mean, I know that a lot a lot of my listeners, when I've talked to them, they say, you know, they're they're around. Who? They're around my age. No, they're actually around my age. And the ones that aren't, I'm like, okay, well, you know, you know what pentatonics is now. It's what my pentatonics was when I was a kid, you know, and, and Rockapella really got me into acapella music. It got me into choral music, actually. Um, you know, it got me to join chorus and I, I can't thank you enough for that. Um, but I'm just curious, like, I, I know some of the stories that I've seen in like articles and from concerts and whatnot, but how did Rockapella truly come together? So four of us were part of the eight person, eight ma- uh, person male acapella group at Brown university called the Brown university hijinks. And the original four that formed Rockapella were me, Elliot Kerman, David Sticks, and Steve Kyes. Uh, that's not the iteration that became famous on Carmen San Diego, mm-hmm. but that that particular iteration we we had uh, sung in college together. And uh, another bass singer, Charlie Evett, who's now in the Groove Barbers with me, he was also a part of our group. But the particular foursome that ended up being Rockapella, it was a lot of it was just the circumstance that we had 
a quartet, bass, baritone, tenor, high tenor, all of a sudden in New York City. Mm. And so it was somewhat a, um, a group of, of convenience in that we were, all, uh, we were all out of school and we wanted to keep doing it. And we were doing it just for fun. We were singing on the street and we were trying to get private parties and uh, we didn't really even, we didn't have an act. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, David Sticks, the bass singer, he left after a year and Charlie Evett, who had also sung with us at Brown, he started taking Amtrak from uh, Boston mm. down to New York City pretty much every weekend and he joined the group, and that's when we that's when we really put an act together. Uh, we were started working at, at cabarets like uh, Don't Tell Mama, which is a famous midtown cabaret, and uh, a place called Upstairs at Green Street. And uh, we really were a cabaret act in that it was some comedy, and it was somewhat theatrical. You know, there was, um, but the roots of Rockapella was very much small clubs trying to get laughs uh we had a lot of props at first you know uh, we had a big suitcase full of props we would sing zombie jamboree with a a, a little blow up um palm tree and uh and i wore the you know the goofy eyeballs in my eyes and we, we just had like literally probably 50 little props in a big suitcase it was somewhat comical awesome um and that that particular um that that's the group uh sean altman Elliot Kerman, Steve Kies, and Charlie Evett. That was the first iteration of Rockapella that was similar to, you know, the Rockapella that became famous. But that particular iteration didn't last because um, Charlie Evett uh, was getting tired of t- schlepping down on Amtrak to New York every weekend. Mm-hmm. So he left the group, and we put an ad in Backstage, which is the big uh, sort of theatrical magazine, and we found Barry Carl. Mm-hmm. And when we took in Barry Carl, it was an enormous professional kick in the pants for us because he was about he was about ten years older than we were, a lot more experienced. He had already sung at New York City Opera, and he was doing voiceovers, and he was a real pro. And he kind of whipped us into shape <laughs> in terms of the way we dressed and our level of professionalism. Uh, we hired a choreographer that was a friend of his, a, a wonderful movement uh, choreographer coach named Joan Merwin, who choreographed those, I don't know if you recall, those uh, very angular, um, uh, they weren't, it wasn't, it wasn't really dance. It was more like stage movement Mm -hmm. for flat tire, zombie jamboree, uh, everything we did. It was all about sort of creating these postcard snapshot looks like okay we're going to create this shape on the stage and then we're going to create this shape so it wasn't really dancey and that we we as a result we didn't we weren't out of breath all the time right. we were just constantly in motion like this weird amoeba <laughs> um and then um after working with barry for a couple of years um that's when we got our our first really big break which was being on uh, Spike Lee and Company Do It Acapella, mm-hmm. that uh, PBS Great Performances TV special that was uh, produced by our good friend uh, Gerard Brown and a gentleman named Spence Halpern. And they, were, they assembled uh, a snapshot of what contemporary acapella was in the, uh, I guess it was like 1991. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the headliner, I suppose, was Take Six. Mm-hmm. And... 
uh, Ladysmith Black Mombazo, The Persuasions, uh, uh, a British gr- a women's group called the Mink Juleps, a, a New York street corner group that used a beatbox um, called True Image, and Rockapella. Mm. And um, I say this with no with only a little bit of self-deprecation. I think that what distinguished us was that we were the only white guys <laughs> on the broadcast. I don't, we weren't the best, but, the, but we were the only white guys. And so I think people remembered us like, oh, yeah, those those funny white guys. <laughs> um, but we, we were thrilled to, to be in that show because we loved the persuasions. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was in the hijinks and colleagues, we used to come into New York City to see their shows, and we idolized the persuasions, particularly the lead singer Jerry Lawson and the bass singer Jimmy Hayes, and we modeled early Rockapella after those uh, kind of doo-wop gospel-y harmonies. That's awesome. We never actually quite said we never actually sounded like them. Yeah. in our minds we did, but we never really <laughs> sounded like them. Now, um, with, with your arrangements, was was that a, a co- group collaborative effort? Um, as you know, with Barry, with Elliot, you know, with Steve, all those guys. Uh, or was it mostly you, or were you just singing standards done a specific way? Well, we um, the very first non-barbershop harmony arrangements that we did were done by Elliot Kerman when we were in college, mm. and he would transcribe Persuasion's arrangements. Mm. And through singing those songs, I kind of learned how to do it. And I, I learned it intuitively because I'm not, uh, I, I don't read music very well. I'm a failed violin player. Um, but I, I, got the, I got the essence of it. Mm-hmm. It's that the bass, especially, this is before vocal percussion was even in the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, the bass carries the rhythm along with finger snaps or hand claps or some sort of, you know, uh, human sounding groove. Mm-hmm. Then there's the lead singer. And then the other two guys just kind of work in tandem, filling in the harmony. And that's the template that I always used, which is that the bass is, it's really three elements. The bass is doing one thing, the lead's doing one thing, and the, and the two backups or sometimes three backups are all working in tandem. And um, then I started doing most of the arrangements. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elliot Kerman did some of them. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I arranged Zombie Jamboree that way and all of those, mm-hmm. you know, some of them won me some awards from the uh, Contemporary Acapella Society. Nice. <laughs> and, uh, but it was really, uh, it, it was really just uh, making the most of four voices. Right. Uh, so there was a lot of pressure on the bass to be, to be uh, rhythmic and also holding down the root, mm-hmm. and a lot of pressure on the two backups to be doing something uh, contrapuntal, right. but also basically you know creating the chord. Right. Um, and then later on Carmen San Diego, when we had to arrange a lot of covers on the fly, mm-hmm. then then that that iteration of the group with Scott Leonard. Mm-hmm. That's when we started arranging together uh, uh, very much, um, you know, in a dressing room, like, okay, we've got 15 minutes. We've got to do a decent arrangement of this 45-second song. But to this day, I think when it's an original, I'll do it all myself. And I know that's the way, you know, everyone else works. I know Scott Leonard works that way. Yeah. 
Now, um, you talk about like arranging on the fly, really. Um, was that was that pretty much cool with, you know, your producers on the show? Was it like, don't worry, we got something and you just came out and, and there it was? Or did you have like multiple like ideas for specific songs? Like, you know, when you would sing during, you know, the chase and, you know, the warrant. And I, I just remember all these different things for each of the characters. Was that something, sure. was that something that, um, you created on the fly or like did some of them take a little bit uh, more time than others? I, I think that we, um, we probably sang them something. I think we probably, I think we, 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 we wrote all, we wrote all those crook themes. Yeah. That, that, that part of that uh, iteration of the group, uh, Barry Carl, Scott Leonard, Elliot Kerman and me, mm-hmm. this, and then later Jeff Thatcher when he joined the group, right. um, all of those Carmen crook themes, we wrote together and, uh, and we pretty much arranged them together. But remember, you know, they're not full songs. Right. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're, they're like, uh, you know, there's the sting part, which is, you know, like, patty, <laughs> you know, but the full song is patty, patty, larceny. Yeah. You know? So we, we, uh, I guess we arranged, we arranged those things together, mm-hmm. but, uh, usually whoever sort of came up with the idea would sort of guide everyone. Right, uh, but that part was really collaborative, and I think we, once once we sort of knew what the rockapella sound was, mm-hmm. it was kind of easy to arrange in the rockapella style. Like we we weren't trying to to reinvent the wheel all the time. Like okay, this is what rockapella sounds like. Right, you know, the lead's doing his thing. The bass does step out moments. Sometimes you know, comedic step out moments. There's nothing better than. You know, a lot of high voices singing, and all of a sudden the bass goes, "Yeah!" Yep. You know, it's just we love that. It's awesome. Um, so, but historic. I just want to go back for the chronology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after we did that, after we did that uh, Spike Lee TV special, that's when uh, we got the call from the producers of Where in the World Is Carmen San Diego, which was a TV show just in development. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, you know, it had it had been a computer game. And they had just gotten their TV deal, and they had already cast Greg Lee and Lynn Thigpen, and they were looking for uh, some musical element. You know, the way it was described to us was like an acapella version of Paul Schaefer and the band. <laughs> and uh, and they saw us, they saw us on um, Spike Lee and Company do it acapella. So the the director of Carmen San Diego, Dana Calderwood, he called me up, and I I remember that phone conversation. He said, "Hey, I saw you guys on." on Spike and Company do it a cappella. I really liked what you did. Would you be interested in coming to audition for this kids game show? And I had never heard of Carmen San Diego and mm-hmm. I was we were intrigued and we had we had absolutely no idea that what it would become. Right. We never considered ourselves a, a kids act. In fact, up until then, kids hated us. <laughs> we would do we would sing at bar mitzvahs for the adults because we were singing barbershop and doo up mm-hmm. and the kids would make fun of us. The kids would, you know, I mean, the kids would walk by us and make faces and <laughs> jeer at us. So the idea that we would all of a sudden become a kid's act was kind of funny. And it just shows you the power of television. Yeah. So then when we got, when we got cast on Carmen San Diego, Steve Kyes, the high tenor, he didn't want to quit law school. Right. Uh, he was, he was in his first year at law school and he would have had to have quit. Mm-hmm. And uh, he made the, you know, the, life and career decision that he didn't want to do that. So that's when we, we, um, we turned to trusty backstage 
again mm-hmm. and put an ad in. And that's where we found Scott Leonard. And that, you know, that, that was a, you know, a huge kick in the pants for the group as well, because Scott had uh, not only, you know, was, was a, an amazing singer, but he was also a songwriter mm-hmm. and he had done some vocal arranging and most importantly, he had contacts in Japan, mm-hmm. which we immediately uh, made use of. And that's what got us our, our first record deal. Nice. Now, with the uh, the theme song itself, you actually um, co-wrote with, um, I believe, if I read correctly, a high school friend, uh, Dave Yazbek, who actually yes. is now also Tony Award winner for The Band's Visit, um, has written numerous popular Broadway musicals, but... Um, you and him uh, wrote the theme song. Can you describe what it was like working with him? Well, I met uh, David when he was a senior in high school and I was a junior. Mm-hmm. And uh, the two of us and David Sticks, who was also, uh, he was also uh, one of the, he was the original bass in Rockapella. Mm-hmm. So three of us were at uh, prep school, a school called Riverdale Country School in the Bronx, which is, it's just, it's just as um, preppy and <laughs> leafy and suburban as it sounds. Uh, and we, um, we became friends because we all sang. Mm-hmm. And we had a group called the Glee Three. And we sang, we had a repertoire of like four, three or four songs. A couple of doo-wop things and something from the musical Hair. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's, when, that's when I met David Yazbek. And he and I started singing together every weekend mm-hmm. I would stay over at his house, and he was already as a as a eighteen year old. He had he already had a repertoire of wow. He'd probably written fifty songs by then, mm-hmm. and we started working on his material very much in like a Simon and Garfunkel fashion, mm-hmm. uh, where I would sing the low part and he would sing the high part, or vice versa, and he would play guitar and piano. So early on, um, I was you know I was. In my mind, I was Art Garfunkel, which is funny now because now one of, one of my <laughs> projects is that I'm, I'm in a Simon and Garfunkel yep. tribute act. <laughs> so, uh, so Yazbek and I, we were we formed a duo called Moon Pudding, and when we were teenagers, we were working clubs all around Manhattan. Mm. And then he went off to college, and we started working clubs at, at Brown in Providence, Rhode Island, and in New York, and we uh, we kept doing that. And so, and he, his musical star continued to rise and he, you know, he, he's become a, you know, an amazing, I mean, he was a genius at age, at age mm-hmm. 18 when I met him and he's still a genius at age 60. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now he's a Tony winning genius. <laughs> so, um, but when, when we got the, when we got the, uh, the Carmen Sandiego gig and they said to us, Hey, we want you, we need music. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want you guys to write the music. And we said, what kind of music? And they told us all these different things. And they said they needed a theme song. And so we all went, our, we all went to our homes and we're like, okay, let's come up with musical ideas. And I had, an, I had a few different ideas for the theme. And I, I took my three or four ideas to the best songwriter I knew, mm-hmm. my high school and college friend, David Yazbek. And I said, Here, these are my ideas. You know, we're, we're cast on this, on this kid's TV show which of these is the best? And he said, this is the best one, and I'd love to work with you on it. And I was thrilled because I knew that if I worked with him on it, it would come out well, and he would help me orchestrate it. And uh, that, was a, that was one of the best decisions I ever made to collaborate with him on that because uh, even though you know, I already I had the hook, mm-hmm. having a hook, and, and I, was, I was very new at songwriting, mm-hmm. just 
I maybe written a couple of songs, but it, it, it took someone of experience to, to take my ideas and, and form them. And then David wrote that really clever chromatic bridge. Yeah. Nashville to nobody to, and also it was his idea. Uh, the whole groove of the song was his idea. Um, one thing that most people don't know is that the groove is based on that Jane's Addiction song called Caught Stealing. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that oh, song? Oh, yeah, I remember that song. In the 90s. Yeah. It was like, dang, 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 da, 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 morphed into hoo <laughs> Yeah, so then, so Yazbek and I demoed it up, and somewhere I have that original demo, which uh, I would love to hear. I haven't heard it in, wow, 30 years. Um, and I took it to to Rockapella, and I said, like, hey, you know, Yazbek and I came up with this thing. What do you think? And they liked it, and we submitted it, and the show liked it, and, you know, we had, we had no idea. You know, the show wasn't even on the air. It was, it was mm-hmm. like, okay, we wrote, a, we wrote a song. We'll see what happens. There was no way we could have known that it would be featured in the... We didn't even know how much Rockapella would be featured, but we certainly didn't know that the, that the theme song would get its own shining moment at the yeah. end of every episode and that we would get name recognition by the kid yelling, do it, Rockapella. Yeah. So uh, that was just, you know, that was, I guess we have to thank uh, Howard Blumenthal and Dana Calderwood, the producer and director of the original show, yeah. for giving us that kind of exposure because as, as catchy as the song is, it wouldn't have become a, uh, you know, as well known as it is without that kind of, um, you know, featured spot, you know, when do you actually get to see someone singing the theme song on camera? Yeah. And I mean, it's actually considered one of the top TV theme songs of all time. Like it's, it's been recognized as one of the most recognizable theme songs of all time. And that's, that's I'm very grateful for that. And I, I'm grateful for that. And I, uh, and I hope the, (laughs) I hope it keeps getting used, you know, the Netflix show, they used it in the um, they used it in promos, mm-hmm. and then they used it for the for this one special episode. I don't know if you saw that. Mm-hmm. Well, so on the Netflix show, this the full song is featured on the one interactive episode mm-hmm. called "To Steal or Not to Steal," mm-hmm. uh, and it's kind of like a little um, it's like a little Easter egg at the end of the show where the the whole cast of the new of the Netflix show sings it. That's awesome. So that was uh, that was nice. I hope they and I know they're they're making a movie. I hope they use the song in the movie. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, now, for you personally, I believe once the show had ended, I know that like Jeff had come on on like the last season. You went from four members to five members, and then um, once the the show had ended, you had actually um, moved on into solo work and uh, with another group called the Groove Barbers, where I actually think you reunited with some of those original. Rockapella members. Uh, can you well, tell me a little was, about the um, Barbers? Or? Yeah, well, in terms of the chronology, hmm. well, first of all, just going back a little bit, Jeff, Jeff Thatcher had actually been singing with the group for several years before he appeared on Carmen Sandiego. Hmm. Um, but the producers, it wasn't until the, the last, the fifth and last season of the show that the producers said, okay, this guy who's been beatboxing with you yeah now he can come on the show too i guess for continuity reasons they didn't want to add a fifth member even though we we had lobbied for him to be on the show because he was a big part of our sound right so carmen san diego 
went off the air in 1995 and I, and I didn't leave the group for two more years. Mm. Um, and you know, the, the reason why I left didn't have anything to do with Carmen San Diego ending, you know, cause that had been right. two, or two years earlier, but right. it, it did have a lot to do with me thinking that this was my only shot to try to get any kind of a solo career going. Mm-hmm. Uh, in retrospect, I, you know, I think it was a mistake because in my head, I thought that I couldn't stay in Rockapella and have a solo career. Hmm. In retrospect, I realized I probably could have. It just it would have been hard. Right. But I still could have um, recorded and done some gigs and tried to get some attention. But at the time, it just it didn't seem like it was feasible. I thought it would be too, uh, it would cost too much friction in the band or, you know, hmm. there would be tension about my motivations and stuff. And, um, you know, also, I mean, it's probably, you, you know, being in a band is hard. <laughs> I don't, oh, yeah. I don't, yeah. You know, it's like you're, it's, it's like a marriage, but it's, it's, it's almost like, it's more like being blood related, I think, because singing harmony is so, you know, it's so physical. Right. Um, so it's almost like when the the anger among siblings <laughs> is that's what happens in bands, you know, because you come together to create this beautiful sound and, you know, you're sort of up in each other's shit and you're in each other's faces and you're matching vowels and you're blending and you're, it, you know, it's so, it, the closeness is pretty intense. Um, right. That coupled with being on the road and, and having some success. And so when I left, it was in a particular time of, of tension that I perceived, you know, me and the other guys in, mm-hmm. in the group. A lot of it I, was my own selfishness at wanting as many songs of mine to be in the repertoire as possible. I mean, mm-hmm. th- this is with the benefit of uh, a lot of hindsight. Right. Uh, but, you know, I, was, I felt like I was really coming into my own as a songwriter. And the group was already doing a lot of my songs, like, I don't know over 20 of my songs, but the group had rejected some of my songs and I really took it to heart. Mm. And I was like, you know, who are these guys to reject my amazing songs? In (laughs) retrospect, it was somewhat egotistical on my part. But, um, but at the time I I wanted everything. I wanted it my way. And I thought the only way I'm going to be able to do things my way is to take my bat and my ball and go hit the ball by myself. <laughs> and, you know, if you, if you have a bat and a ball, you don't really get to play very much. You just hit the yeah. ball and no one's there to catch it. It's kind of right. pathetic. That's interesting. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, if I could do it again, I, I wouldn't have quit and I would have tried to, to do a solo thing. You know, the solo thing, I, I, it was incredibly gratifying. And um, I'm glad I put out those records and I, I felt like I, I've made my mark as a songwriter in mm-hmm. the world, but I really, really missed for many years being on nice big stages performing for lots of people. Yeah. And so uh, that was tough. Fortunately, now I'm singing for big audiences again in a, in a different way with the, uh, the Everly set and Forever Simon and Garfunkel. So that's nice. Yeah. 
And we're going to talk about those two groups in a little bit, because actually, um, funny story, and I might as well say this, we were actually supposed to interview a few days ago, and you were actually on tour uh, with the Everly set, and uh, hotel Wi-Fi did not want to cooperate with us. So um, we were, through technical difficulties, we were able to to make this work, and I'm I'm glad that we're making this work. Um, Now, the Groove Barbers... I forgot you had asked me about the Groove Barbers, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So the Groove Barbers um, were essentially... In, in my opinion, they were, you know, bringing barbershop to a new, a new level, at least in my, well, the way that I viewed it. It was kind of um, back to the roots of what Rockapella was, in my opinion. And, and you even, like I said, you even brought some of those old guys back. So with the Groove Barbers, um, how did that, how did you decide to bring them together? Well, so... When I quit Rockapella in 1997, and then within a year, uh, I and Steve Kyes, the uh, original high tenor of Rockapella, who I went to college with, and um, Charlie Evitt, who also had been in Rockapella, uh, and uh, a, a baritone friend, Kevin Wiest, hmm. uh, uh, we, we decided to just start singing together um, because we wanted to, we all wanted to keep singing. We were all Three of us were alums of Rockapella and still loved singing together. And it was, uh, we came together. Um, I wouldn't say it was a lark because we got, we got some gigs immediately, but it was more because we had the common repertoire. I mean, with Charlie and Steve, we, we, we had the early Rockapella repertoire uh, already there. Mm-hmm. And we taught it to Kevin. We got Elliot Kerman, who was still in Rockapella at the time, to make us, to make learning tapes of the early Rockapella barbershop and, um, doo-op repertoire, which mm-hmm. Kevin Wiest learned, and the Groove Barbers started working. And it was, it, the Groove Barbers still exists. It's, it's always been kind of a, a, a hobby act for all of us. Um, but that being said, we've done, you know, we probably do maybe, in, our, in a good year, we'll do six or seven gigs. Usually it's just like three or four gigs. Mm-hmm. But we've also made four or five albums, and we've appeared on two national TV commercials so we've managed to get some pretty cool stuff. Uh, and uh, I love singing with those guys. I'm doing three gigs with them this coming December. Oh, nice. And uh, Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> and, and, and it is very much is the, the sound of early acapella. Nice. And uh, now not really acapella related, but now you, you mentioned it before. Um, you actually have not one, but two acts that you're doing uh, with a, a, another friend of yours, a partner of yours, where um, you're doing the music of the Everly Brothers, um, and then you uh, called the Everly Set, and then you have another um, act that you have together called uh, Forever, Simon and Garfunkel, with the yes. music of... And, you know, for me, as a general music teacher, um, for middle school general music, one of the things that I really push is, you know, rock and roll history. And um, when we get into those early rock and roll discussions, these are two of the groups that I discuss, you know, these, these rock and roll hall of famers here. And when I play the music for my students, a lot of them don't realize that they've heard this music before. They just didn't know who sang it. And you're kind of keeping the spirit of those two groups alive with uh, the Everly set and forever Simon and Garfunkel. So can you talk about what that's been like uh, touring with those groups, um, you know, and performing uh, that music for the past few years. Yeah, you know, the Everly set started out 
very um, organically in that I never thought uh, this young guy, when I met him, he was 14 years old. Mm. His name is Jack Sculler. And we were paired at a Simon and Garfunkel tribute to sing a duet together. Mm. I didn't know him. I knew his dad. And he was my duet partner for one song. You know, and, uh, but he was, he was good. And he was really well prepared. And we had a really nice blend. And so then uh, I, I would see him backstage at other tribute shows. And then when he was 16, uh, he was already, uh, he already had a record deal and he was working and, and he, he'd become a pretty good guitar player. And we would see each other backstage at other people's shows. And we would, we always seemed to gravitate toward two-part harmony stuff, like that very first duet we did of uh, Mrs. Robinson, Simon and Garfunkel song. Mm. And I started inviting him to guest at my shows, and he would invite me to guest at his shows. And we would always end up singing Bye Bye Love, Wake Up Little Susie, and uh, maybe All I Have to Do is Dream. And when, once we had a repertoire of about five songs, uh, he had just turned 18, and we said, you know, why don't we put together a club act just to see if we can get a, a couple of gigs? And we put together the show, and uh, it was instantly uh, beloved by our, <coughs> by our friends and families. And they're like, you guys should do something with this. Well, we, I had no idea there was a market. And we started doing house concerts, and then we started doing showcases at these uh, booking conventions. And that's when, we, that's when things kind of took off for us. We signed with a, a, an agent who represents a lot of uh, really big tribute acts. And for the last, um, last four years, we've been touring the country. And, and uh, during pandemic, we put together the Simon and Garfunkel repertoire called Forever Simon and Garfunkel. And now we've already done 20 shows with that act. And um, yeah, but we're working th- at theaters and, uh, you know, these big state fairs. You know, last night we, we, <laughs> we opened for... Um, Daryl McDaniel of Run DMC, and two nights ago we we played, and then the band Huba Stank went on. Oh you know, wow! So we're, yeah, you know, so I mean, on any given night, we're performing for five hundred to a thousand people, and That's uh, it's great. I mean, because I th- I thought that that part of my career was over, mm-hmm. performing for large crowds, uh, and I love it. I just you know I love this music. Jack is a great guy, a great collaborator, and. Um, you know, we've, we've been recording all this material, and uh, all of a sudden, I'm I'm out there again. Yeah. So it's fun. That's great. And, you know, this brings me to the question that I, I wanted to ask is because you've experienced longevity in your career in, in a variety of avenues, you know, between Rockapella, Groove Barbers, your solo career, and now the Everly Set and uh, Forever Simon and Garfunkel. So what do you attribute to the longevity um, of your career? Like, is it, you know, just the sheer joy? It, like, I know that there's a lot of, a lot of work that goes into it, but what um, would you suggest to, like, how, how do I word it? <laughs> and I will edit this. This is fine. Um, how, what do you attribute to the longevity of your career? You know, my brother said something really flattering to me about 10 years ago. Um, you know, I've never become a rock star. I always wanted to be a rock star, and I've mm-hmm. never become a rock star. And so in that, res- in many respects, I think like, oh, you know, I never, I never quite hit the heights that I wanted to. But I have, I've had like seven different bands that have gotten national attention. Mm-hmm. And, um, and my brother said, you know, you, know, you realize that you're the, you're the common thread. Like all of these groups, it's when you 
when you start something, you, you want to make it succeed. Mm-hmm. And it's really true that every single one of these acts I kind of stuck with and promoted and pushed and they, and something great has happened to all of them. Um, I mean, we're not even talking about, uh, I've two other, I have like this comedy song act called Jumungus. Mm-hmm. And before that I was in another comedy song act called what I like about Jew <laughs> and every single one of these acts, even, uh, even the band I was in before Rockapella blind dates, you know, we were on, we, we were, we had a video on MTV when I was right out of college. Mm. So I've had this sort of remarkable run of <laughs> mid-level national <laughs> success with about eight different acts. <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's really nice. Um, cause it makes me think like, Oh, you know, each one of these things that I, I, you know, in some, in some way I must have a little bit of the Midas touch. Like when I, I, I set my heart to something, mm. uh, and I follow through with it. You know, I, I, people, people seem to like it. Um, <clears throat> I have not become wealthy beyond my dreams, nor famous beyond my dreams. But uh, it's been a really, really enjoyable career. And it feels like it just keeps on going. Um, I, I think a lot of it, I guess, is sort of having an optimistic attitude. And also, I think I'm, I'm particularly well-suited to what my friend... Uh, in the Groove Barbers, Kevin Wiest calls the great middle class of working musicians. It's, you know, it's not the, it's not the struggling musicians, the ones who are, you know, waiting tables and -hmm. it's not the people who are making millions of dollars. It's everybody in the middle. Mm -hmm. And that's the people that you don't necessarily read about every day, but they kind of keep grinding away. And they're the people that you see on, on Broadway or, uh, or in, in weddings or on TV commercials, or at state fairs, or various different acts, and we're and we're all just making a decent middle class living, and that's yeah. uh, that's what I am. I'm part of the great middle class of American musicians. That's an that's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, I think the reason why I'm particularly well suited is that I I actually really enjoy the you know I guess the struggle. Like it doesn't some people. They, they might say, if I don't become a rock star, then everything I've done is for shit. Mm. Or if I don't, you know, get a record contract, then it's all, it will all have been a waste. You know, even now, I, I still do some kind of pretty, you know, I do like, you know, I'm sing, I sing uh, at bar mitzvahs. I sing at um, corporate events. I produce weird parody songs for pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> and the weird thing is, I actually like it all. I like performing for a thousand people and I like going to a local hospital and singing for one patient. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why I'm particularly well suited for this business is that I just really, I like to perform and I like to sing Mm. whether it's making me a lot of money or no money. Yeah. It's, it's it's about the joy of it. I'd say then you've definitely brought, I mean, like I said, I mean, you've you impacted a lot of people over the course of your career, and I'm one of them. So oh, that's thank really you. nice to hear. Thank you for that. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to I, I'm hoping that you, you make your way to New York, like upstate. I say upstate, I mean, like above Westchester um, <laughs> with, you know, with the Everly set just to, you know, just to see you perform with this this act that you have now. Um, but Sean Altman, it has been a pleasure to have you uh, join me this week uh, and an honor to be able to speak with you. Um, so, Sean, thank you so much for joining me. This week on the Aka Education Podcast. Justin, thanks so much for having me. And uh, 
and uh, I'm honored that you've uh, that I've influenced you and uh, and any of your listeners. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll be right back. Hey everyone, this is Justin from the Aka Education Podcast here to tell you about Anchor. Anchor is what I use to create these podcasts, and let me tell you, it's free. Uh, There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And the beauty of it is we'll distribute the podcast for you. So I can record on Anchor and it's going to send it to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all these other places as well. And I love that I can make money from this podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So be sure to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I have to take the time to thank, once again, one of my idols from my childhood, Sean Altman, for joining me this week on the Aka Education Podcast. Thanks again, Sean. Be sure to check out the links in the episode description for resources from this week's episode. Follow the podcast on social media, at Aka Ed Podcast, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And follow me, Justin Glodish, at OfficialJGlow on TikTok and Twitter. If you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. We're found on Anchor, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. New episodes released every Monday. You can also now tune into the podcast on Akaville Radio, akaville.org. If interested in supporting this podcast with a monthly donation, go over to anchor.fm slash podcast to do so. And if you ever have any questions about the podcast, suggestions on future guests, please email me at akaedpodcast at gmail.com or leave a voice message on the Anchor website. From the Aka Education Podcast, I'm Justin Glodish. We'll talk soon.